In many ways, the world in which we're living today is an extremely depressing place. Former Vice President Joe Biden will win the Florida primary. It's hard to deny that, and it's wrong to deny that. The former Vice President Joe Biden will defeat Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders in the Arizona Democratic presidential primary tonight. War, starvation, the degradation of our environment, people being manipulated and lulled into a stupor by the mass media. It's okay. So Biden, you see, is going to get a very big win here out of Illinois. And again, this is, talk about a reverse. This is what the state looked oh, wow. like four years ago. This was Bernie Sanders. Basically, what saved Hillary Clinton four years ago was Chicago, the city of Chicago, huge part, and East St. Louis, down in this part of the state, and a few counties here in western Illinois. Otherwise, this was Sanders' country in 2016, and he nearly got a win in Illinois. But tonight in 2020, when I say this is like Michigan, that's what we saw in Michigan last week. He went from a state where Bernie Sanders was getting blowout wins in rural counties, where he was winning big in big college counties, where he was competitive in the suburbs, and it's just a complete reversal. I, I think, let's see what happens here where Urbana-Champaign is, University of Illinois. But I think what we saw in Michigan last week, right now, we might see all Biden blue wow. in Illinois again. Let's and on and on it goes. But if we become depressed, overwhelmed by the obstacles in front of us in creating a world of sanity, of joy, of compassion, then we become part of the problem, another obstacle that others who are prepared to be socially and politically active will have to overcome. During the 1960s, when Martin Luther King Jr. and the people in the civil rights movement stood up to the bigots and the power structure who were denying Americans their basic human rights, they sang a song on marches, on picket lines, and in the jailhouses. A song which became a symbol of hope, a belief that one day we shall overcome, and that on this earth there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be human brotherhood. Hi, I'm Bernie Sanders, I'm running for president, and I'm asking you today to be part of an unprecedented grassroots campaign of one million active volunteers in every state in our country. Our campaign is not only about defeating Donald Trump, the most dangerous president in modern American history. It is not only about winning the Democratic nomination and the general election. Our campaign is about transforming our country and creating a government based on the principles of economic, social, racial, and environmental justice. Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all, you don't know that, second Bernie. of all, we'll come I, to you in a second, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. And second of all, as the FEC fundraising deadline for 2019 approaches, 
I am once again asking for your financial support. popular vote in Iowa. We won the New Hampshire primary. And according to three networks in the AP, we have now won the Nevada caucus. I don't have to tell anyone viewing this program uh, that our country and, in fact, the world are facing an unprecedented series of crises. Uh, we're dealing with the coronavirus, uh, which is spreading throughout this country and throughout the world. We're dealing with a growing economic meltdown, which will impact tens of millions of workers in this country. Uh, we're dealing with a political crisis uh, as well. Uh, and I think the main point to be made uh, tonight is that in this moment of crisis, it is imperative that we stand together, uh, understand that right now, throughout this country, there are so many of our people who are wondering, what is going to happen to me tomorrow? In my own city, Burlington, Vermont, bars have been shut down, restaurants shut down, childcare centers shut down, schools shut down. What happens to all the people? who lose their jobs. What happens to people who tonight are worried that they may have the coronavirus but don't have the resources to get the tests they need or the treatment that they need? So this is a moment that we have got to be working together uh, and going forward together.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you uh, on on this uh, uh, lockdown. <laughs> I don't think that I was officially locked down the last time that I spoke to you guys uh, on the main feed on Friday. But now that is the case, here on Wednesday, March 18th, I am one of six million people in the Bay Area, including San Francisco, San Jose, and uh, where I am out in the East Bay, the Oakland area, we are restricted from uh, any and all non-essential travel. So you can go to the supermarket, you can go to the corner store, you can uh, take a jog. That's pretty much it. Otherwise, no traveling outside. No getting on a plane unless it's for very specific business. The weed stores are still open, though. So that's nice. We got that going for us. But it's from this, this vantage point in the center of America's reaction to a global crisis that we bring you the ever-evolving world of politics. Let it never be said that America in its latter seasons got boring. Why, for all the hijinks that this scrappy nation has undergone, I don't think we ever tried slow-motion 9-11 during an election year. And yet, here we are. Not only did we have a very weird debate on Sunday, even the primary contests that happened yesterday were supposed to be a big power quartet, and we were left with only three states voting. That's because Governor Mark DeWine of Ohio decided that it was a health emergency for his citizens to not leave their house and vote. Whether or not we will reschedule the Ohio primary, whether or not it will matter if they reschedule the Ohio primary is up for debate. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about exactly why that is in a little bit, but three States did vote Arizona, Florida, and Illinois. And the reason why we played uh, such a, a sad song for Bernie up there at the top was because, well, friends, it looks like the horse is, out of the barn here. Let's go ahead and start with Arizona. It was the last state to close its polls, but really it was the closest state of the night. Joe Biden wins 43.6 to 31.7. It demonstrates yet another a clear trend that has existed throughout this election, and that is that Bernie Sanders has a voice to move Latinos, specifically Mexican-Americans, all throughout the country. But Arizona's a border state. They came out for Bernie here, just not enough to really get, bring it even to a single-digit loss. Uh, and guys, that's the good news. If you're a Bernie fan, congratulations. That was the good news. 
From this point on, it only gets rougher. Illinois, 99% reporting, has Bernie Sanders at 36, Joe Biden at 59. That is a 23-point loss for Bernie Sanders. That is a state that he only lost by one percentage point in 2016. That that clip we had up top of Steve Kornacki of, of MSNBC, th- this is... What he was talking about, that that he Joe Biden turned Illinois into Michigan. Solid Biden country. Speckles, if that, of Bernie Sanders' support. A 23-point loss is a massive delegate haul for Joe Biden in a very populous state. And yet, the most populous state, the richest prize in the game, sitting fat, with 219 delegates to award, was Florida. And as I look at this map, there is not a single Florida county won by Bernie. Closest he gets is Alachua County. That is where the University of Florida is, and he lost that by 11 points. But let's go ahead to the big counties that matter. You're going to hear this a lot. The I-4 corridor. The I-4 corridor is is a big swing county, but it also means that there's a lot of Democrats there. And Bernie obviously lost them all. He comes closest in Orange County. That's where Orlando is, 57 to 32. But Hillsborough County, blowout at 55 to 26. Hernando County, 21 to 55. Lake County, 69 to 20. And uh, uh, Volusia County, 58 to 21. The Ivor Corridor matters a lot. Mostly because in a world where an excited Republican base turns out in the general, that's pretty much all of Florida except for that one little tie that goes from, you know, Tampa to Daytona effectively. But if you are a Democrat, To even get to the level where the I-4 corridor matters, you gotta blow out these three counties. I know you guys are uh, sick of me saying it, but let's go to the results right now. Miami County, or Miami-Dade County, Broward, West Palm Beach. This is where Democrats live in Florida. It is a traditional stronghold. It is a stronghold that will turn out for you with the right candidate. Last night, that candidate was Joe Biden. Joe Biden in Miami-Dade County, 61 to 22. In Broward County, 67 to 19. And in Palm Beach County, 69.6 to 15.9. These are not sustainable margins. You had to cut into there. You had to be, look, yes, these three counties in general are moderate Democrats. They're not super, super, super liberal, at least on the scale of, let's say, California. But they are reliable, and they are pragmatic. And last night, they said this contest is over. And even at the most charitable, it's going to be hard to disagree with them. Bernie listeners... I'm going to tell you what you already know in your heart. This is done. And and for this reason, 
As it stands right now, Joe Biden leads Bernie Sanders 1,173 delegates to 881. Biden only needs 1,991 to win. And not only would it take a tremendous reversal of this race to switch things But Bernie's also running out of time, and we don't even know exactly what that schedule is going to be. So I'm going to flip this over and talk about the Bernie side in a second. But before I do, I want to make one thing very clear. The head of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, is a feckless coward. And it would be tremendous for that party. And for those that care about this party, if some degree of leadership was shown one way or another. Here's what I'm talking about. You've seen a couple states now, including Louisiana, Georgia, I believe West Virginia, and then Ohio declared their uh, medical emergency that are moving these contests back because they don't want their populace to go out and congregate, sometimes in long lines, cough on each other, and next thing you know, you've spread this global pandemic that we've already sacrificed a a, a bull economy for. Like, we've made the sacrifice we can't take back. We shut down the country. So if that's already been done, I don't blame these state parties. I don't blame these state governments for saying, you want to know what? Not now. Let's move it back. We'll see how it goes. Now, this vexes Tom Perez because Tom Perez is looking, and before we even get to who his preference is to be the nominee, of which I think he has one. But baseline, let's give him credit. He's got a schedule to keep, and he's wondering whether or not he's going to cancel his convention, let alone how these things are, are going to uh, fit into the calendar if if contests are getting moved back, when do they happen? When do those state conventions happen? I understand he's got a lot to juggle. However, the time that we're in right now demands leadership and not hedging. Tom Perez this week said it would be his great, great preference if these states kept their contests going. That's unacceptable. You're the leader of the party. It is your job to say either this is happening or it's not. He said, oh, it would be great if everybody from here on out did mail-in ballots. He knows that that's not feasible. He knows better. It's a PR stunt. He literally just wants to make it look like he's doing something. He might as well stand up on a footstool on MSNBC and yell, it's shake and bake and I helped because that's exactly how much you have to do with what is going on right now, Tom Perez. Say what will happen. You're a leader in this field. That is that. I personally think they should delay stuff. Combine it into into some kind of 
super primary, even if it's two weeks before the convention. We're not living in normal times right now. Stop trying to preserve what we were going to have. That world is dead. Build a new one that fits these new realities. But why would we expect anything else from Tom Perez? Why would we expect different from the guy who bungled his debate so hard? Why would we expect something different from the man who, when all hell was breaking loose in Iowa, Tom Perez decided to distance himself from it and then throw the state leadership under the bus as if he's not somebody with any kind of authority. Come on, man. This is one of those episodes where I just got to keep Twitter open. Not to say that I wouldn't keep Twitter open anyway, but now I'm really watching it because I don't know what's going to happen. The biggest thing that could happen today is that Bernie makes an announcement that he's suspending his campaign. In fact, we already had one false alarm. There was a misinterpreted or mislabeled Axios post about Bernie suspending all of his Facebook ads that read like he was suspending his campaign. The campaign spokesperson immediately shot that down. And here we are. I'm going to make this plain. Bernie, folks. He's out of bullets. This is the realization that you took your last best shot and we are where we are. There was a one-on-one debate. Didn't really do anything. Bernie post-South Carolina started focusing a little bit more on a message that would appeal to moderate Democrats or African-American Democrats. Didn't resonate. Bernie went hard on Social Security against Joe Biden. Highlighting his record of uh, of flirting with the Republicans, saying that he might consider cutting or reforming elements of Social Security. No impact. Even in Florida, where obviously Social Security is a big, 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 big thing. Most Voters assumed that Biden would take better care of the program than Bernie would. So even if this were a normal primary season, and trust me, it is not, the question I have tactically for Bernie 2020 is, realistically, how do you change the dynamics of this race? Because thanks to proportional delegates, Bernie doesn't have to start winning states and he isn't close to any of them at least last night he's got to start blowing Biden out and that seems very unrealistic so we come back to how and when will he exit the stage the Argument for now is this. He can go out a hero. In fact, he can go out exactly the kind of hero that he likes to go out as. One that is thumbing its nose at the Democratic Party. 
he can say, because Tom Perez is such a clown and they can't show any leadership, I'm suspending my campaign so I can focus on the world's greatest medical disaster of my lifetime. If I were him, I'd think about doing this anyway, no matter whether or not he he, he thought he was really going to quit the race, mostly because I think that there is a, a, a you know, if, if the tactical question is how you turn the tide, then saying running for president right now isn't as, isn't as important to me as making sure that the American people get their voice heard right now during the arguments that we're having in the Senate to make sure that we can land on our feet with this, then that's showing a lot more leadership than Joe Biden out there playing president cosplay. And again, we're not in normal times. Let's say that this does calm down and then there is time and then Joe Biden gets COVID and and now we're thinking about who should be the nominee again, there's no reason why Bernie can't come right back out and say that it's going to be him. You're only suspending, which normally means ending, but what if it's really a suspension? Obama suspended his campaign along with McCain when it came to the financial uh, disaster in 2008. I just don't know what other moves he's got. I don't. That's why I did the big flowery thing up front. Because quite honestly, by the next time that I speak to everybody on the main feed, I think it may be over. The report today was that he was going to reassess. We haven't heard anything through this afternoon. But it wouldn't shock me if first thing tomorrow morning we get something. Usually that's when these kinds of events happen because once once you tell one person in your campaign that cat's out of the bag. So I won't eulogize him yet. I won't do any kind of postmortem yet. We ain't ringing any gongs here. I just don't know how long it's going to be until we do. Oh my god. Oh. Oh! No! Wait, did it happen? Did it happen? The campaign undertaker's here! He's here, but is it... Is it... Uh, no? According to, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders speaking to CNN's, uh, Manu Raju, he said, I'm dealing with an effing global crisis right now. Right now, I'm trying to do my best to make sure that we don't have an economic meltdown and that people don't die. Is that enough for you to keep me busy for today? So it's not gonna be... Bernie, who could it be? Oh, Bill Weld quit. Okay. Oh. Wait. No, no just go home. That's fine. No, I'll pick up. I'll pick up. Yeah, I'll just sweep the smoke out. It's fine. It's fine. You've had a great season, though. A great season. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Cool. All right. False alarm. Hey, guys, if you want to support this show, then go ahead and head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now, normally I give you guys the whole big pitch, but let me just tell you something uh, uh, sincerely from the heart. Number one, we are about to go into uncertain economic times. And quite frankly, I don't know exactly how this little life that uh, I've carved out here is is going to handle it. I've, 
Never lived a Patreon existence through anything uh, uh, but sunny times economically. So I'm just like everybody else who has no idea what the next few weeks or months hold for us. However, I do know this for sure. There's a lot of other people that are probably listening to me right now that do know that things are bad. Lost their jobs, waiters, bartenders, busboys. Uh, seasonal employees that were planning on on having a gig for a little bit longer. It's bad out there. I don't begrudge anybody if you got a reshuffle budget, and and you know for for whatever reason, you know paying for this thing is is not in the cards. I totally get it. Please know that I'm thinking about you. Please know that I care about each and every one of you that are listening. If for whatever reason you do feel like things are comfortable and you want to support stuff like this, then please go ahead. Take politics seriously.com. That does mean though, that we have some Pete gear to give away the campaign undertaker rewarding those that uh, uh, gather the wreckage, some of the campaigns that ran. Uh, Pete was the giveaway this week, and the gear goes to Isaac R., John R., and John M. You guys have all won. Go check uh, your comments on the post last week. And uh, if you're just listening to this right now, then go ahead and just email me a good mailing address, theyoungamerican at gmail. Dot com. But the giveaways don't stop. We had a big rush on these. So uh, we are going to keep it rolling. The next person to drop out in, chronolo- in chronological order was Amy Klobuchar. You want some Kloby merch? Then uh, go ahead and uh, write gong, G-O-N-G, on this episode of the... Uh, of the podcast, and I'll get you guys anything that I have, clearing out the vaults of all the Klobuchar stuff. Our guest today is Elizabeth Cohen. She's a professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. I remember that. Her book is Illegal, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime Threatens Us All, and it is uh, out now. You can go get it. Right now. And you can listen to it right now. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. All right. Citizenship. Obviously something that is, uh, in in many ways, kind of uh, uh, predates the concept of America, but plays such a pivotal role here, specifically in an age where we are very focused on immigration. Uh, uh, I always like to go back to what the, the, the place where we want to frame this conversation. So... In terms of American citizenship becoming a political issue, how far back do we go? Oh, you know, in some of my research, I've I've really discovered that it goes all the way back to the founding. There have been disagreements about who was really entitled to citizenship, uh, both with respect to people coming from outside the boundaries of the nation, um, with respect to loyalists who fought against the founding of the nation and with respect to 
lots of people born inside the borders of the United States um, who many thought were not qualified to be citizens. So this idea of discriminating, and I use that word um, in both the pejorative sense and in the non-pejorative sense of, of drawing distinctions is, I think, just um, inextricably bound up with the idea of being a nation state. Is part of that because we are a, a newer nation relative to world history and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, we, we are obviously a nation of immigrants both at our founding and certainly through every boom period we've ever had in this uh, in this country? You know, I certainly think we've had to contend with um, a really unique set of citizenship questions in the United States. Um, you know, we held on to um, to the practice of enslavement and slavery longer than other peer nations. We've had more immigration. Um, so, you know, on on one side of the equation, we've we've exhibited an interest in excluding people from the rights of full citizenship. Um, at, at every point in the history of the country. But we're also, uh, in my mind, the country that kind of invented really full naturalization, the, the laws that allow people who weren't citizens at birth to become full citizens um, in, in, in no prior context was, was this possible. So, you know, we kind of um, have a multifaceted relationship to inclusion and citizenship in the U.S. So on one hand, it has always been a contentious question, yet we have also been a trailblazer in inventing the idea that anywhere, you can be born anywhere in the world and eventually become an American citizen as if you were born in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes, yeah. It's, it's really, um, it's very bifurcated. All right, so so let's get a little bit closer to our our, our modern context. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. this is a, a, an only ever more complicated question, considering the fact that we obviously have big borders to our north and south. Uh, we are a, a nation with a tremendous amount of international travel and tourist destinations and universities, a lot of reasons why people come here, uh, uh, where would you like to frame our modern context for citizenship and naturalization? Um, I think that, you know, there's a couple different really pivotal points at which things became set that are now um, framing the debate about both citizenship and immigration. So, I look to the 1920s as a point at which we decided we were going to have federal enforcement of ex exclusion. There was certainly enforcement of exclusion before that, but it wasn't really being done by the federal government. I look to 1965 um, for the framework of priorities for admission. Uh, we've certainly fiddled with it since then, but it is in large part still in place. And then I look to the 1990s in particular, 1996, as a point at which we really became heavily invested in trying to not just exclude people from coming to the United States, but also to criminalize people for, in some cases, just for being immigrants, but um, in other cases for being undocumented. And so I, I think, you know, those are those are some framing or some really pivotal moments that led us to the place we find ourselves in today. 
so let's let's get into the more modern one. Let, let, let's get into 1996. <laughs> uh, obviously, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of reasons why people would want to come to America. And then I would add on top of that, very obviously, the fact that we have had a fairly stable economy, uh, uh, specifically compared to nations around the world. Uh, there are jobs to be had. Where does the political motivation to criminalize undocumented immigrants come from? Uh, where, where, where do we uh, uh, where do we start to see that? Sure. I mean, I think that that is there. There are multiple things feed into that. What you're seeing in the 1990s is something I think people think is a little bit newer, but uh, a really longstanding campaign of on the part of white nationalists, by which I mean people who wanted the United States to be a whiter and at that point more kind of European nation who were looking for different avenues to exclude people that they perceived were not white. Um, whiteness is, of course, a, a malleable concept. Um, and so we saw that. We also saw the um, kind of bringing together of a longstanding practice of mass incarceration with the immigration enforcement practices that were um, in place. So there was a move to just mandatorily detain and incarcerate large numbers of people in the 1990s that kind of mimicked the, what was going on in the criminal justice system. And, um, and then I, I think there was a campaign on the part of people who maybe don't qualify as white nationalists, but were definitely nativists looking to capitalize on fear, in many cases, really unfounded fear. And so it all comes together in the 1990s to, um, to support the passage of a couple of laws that now allow mass incarceration of, of immigrants. In some cases, we're not just talking about undocumented immigrants, but we're talking about um, about people who are lawfully present. So one of the things that that I've always heard as as at least part of the rhetoric of of candidates from the early '90s, like Patrick Buchanan, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is economics and and specifically the idea that a if we are going to have uh, minimum wages, if we're going to have requirements for safety, that that is harmed to the point of of maybe those laws being toothless if we have under the table payment to folks who come in undocumented and and if we don't get a handle on that then then we are exacerbating these problems you didn't list that as as one of the reasons uh, so i assume you might you know take some uh, have some criticism for that point of view uh, but do you think it holds water at all um i mean so one of the difficult, challenging things about working on immigration is that you have to work against a lot of things that people hold cling tightly to because they're intuitive. And uh, the arguments that you just cited, and I'm going to kind of pull two out that I think are pretty closely related, mm -hmm. um, having to do with wages and then uh, employment. Those those I hear all the time that surely it must be the case that having lots of immigrant workers, even undocumented immigrant workers in the country depresses wages. And surely they are taking jobs that would otherwise be available to U.S. citizens 
and would be better jobs if they were held by U.S. citizens. And, you know, those are intuitively attractive propositions. They also are utterly unsupportable by data. Um, We've had multiple studies done in a variety of different ways, trying to look at the effect of having immigrant labor in the country. And and it just doesn't support the conclusions that nativists reach with respect to both wages and employment. And so there's there are studies that use uh, recent data, um, and then there's studies that use a lot of economic historians who've done some really like much deeper and broader digging with larger numbers. They all come to the same conclusion, which is that what you see happen when you achieve the goal of somebody like Buchanan or any other nativist who, who wants to keep workers and is really focused on keeping worker, foreign born workers out of the United States is um, it, it does not raise wages for U.S. workers. And in fact, often what happens is um, that uh, there is a shrinking of job opportunities that having immigrant workers in the mix um, sustains a lot of businesses that do want to do one of two things if they're deprived of immigrant workers. Um, they look to automate, or in some cases, they can't sustain themselves and they they um, die off. This automation thing like goes way, way back. So there's a new piece coming out by a group of economic historians that shows that this is even what happened when we tried to close our borders and we successfully did really close our borders to most immigrant workers and most immigrants in the 1920s, that even before the kind of automation we're imagining now, like AI and robots and things, um, you know, the cheapest thing to do um, and the most sensible thing to do was when you didn't have immigrant workers was to find machines. And that's bad for U.S. workers in the long run. And so the the the, the stopgap of undocumented workers that would be paid under the table is preferable to the outlay and investment into automation that would permanently put those jobs out of commission. Is that the argument? No, I wouldn't put it that way. First of all, you know, in the 1920s, they weren't undocumented. Um, sure, sure. But also, like, it's not, I, it, it is not the case that I'm saying it's, it's good to have undocumented workers. I'm saying that having immigrant workers, some of whom are documented, some of whom are undocumented, isn't having the effect that the Buchanans of the world describe them having. Okay. And what we should, we should be shooting for uh, labor practices that treat everybody fairly. Um, and that doesn't have to hurt anybody except, like, a few extremely greedy actors who might like to profit from from labor abuse. But, you know, we, we actually can be better off by having a mix of Amer- U.S.-born and foreign-born workers, all of whom are treated fairly. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, we do now, right? I mean, I guess the, 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 the treated fairly part is, is probably the most up for debate, but we certainly have a mix <laughs> of foreign-born and, and native-born workers now. I've always looked at immigration as fundamentally a kind of supply and demand problem, that we have uh, more people that want American citizenship than we have a will or at least a system currently and historically uh, uh, than, than we have amount to to give for whatever price. You know, we have a, a kind of very long and archaic uh, way of, of getting it. 
is is part of the solution then rethinking what citizenship is uh, or or is it just taking what it is now and and making it easier to obtain so um You've described a set of beliefs that's really focused on pull factors, what draws people to a place. Yeah. And I don't know that you can really understand the um, process of migration by looking at pull factors. I am inclined to suggest thinking about push factors. And so let me just explain that a little bit. Like the decision to migrate is incredibly costly not just in terms of requiring a capital investment to to get out of a place and move to another place, but just people are giving up usually the most important things in their lives. They're giving up the opportunity to live among their loved ones, to speak their own language, and to, like things that really make us who we are. Yeah. So I I tend to believe that people do that not because like they really see that that there's a limited supply of u.s citizenship and they want some of it i tend to think that they do it when they absolutely are compelled to leave that place and um certainly people are going to try and go to a place where they think they can be safe and um can raise their families and be sustained and that may be the united states for a larger group of people um than any other particular place, but but they're being pushed. And we know they're yeah. being pushed because we can see moments when numbers go down. And like, you know, the number of people trying to enter the United States without papers or even enter the United States from a particular place goes down when circumstances in that place improve. We see sure. this, you know, very starkly with Mexico. It doesn't go down because we're enforcing heavily or because we decide we're not going to naturalize very many people. We're going to create long lines waiting, you know, very lengthy waits so that people can't get citizenship. That doesn't really affect migration. What affects migration is the place where people might migrate from being a livable place. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I maybe maybe I was indelicate in the way I, I described it, but uh, it, it is. It is something that I've always thought between migratory labor, so folks that want to come from Mexico and then return to Mexico after working in the United States, for example, uh, uh, or you know, uh, people that w want to uh, live here for a, a portion of time, let's say until uh, uh, where they uh, have naturalized from, you know, maybe recovers or they want to live here and then bring money back if, on, on a longer timetable. I guess I, in my mind, I want to go to a system where we can figure out a way to, to do that in a way that is above board. Although I would, I would guess from what you've talked about before, we used to have a system where this was not as criminalized and we therefore didn't have to worry about it as much. And, and it's, it's because of political factors that we have codified these things into illegality and, and maybe the, answer yeah. is to repeal some of these uh, legal boundaries as opposed to creating new legal ways that folks can qualify. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think certainly the the distinction between somebody who's present legally and somebody who's present illegally is like relatively new in U.S. history. It dates back again to the 
1920s, we didn't start penalizing people for being in the U.S. without papers until 1929. <clears throat> um, so it's an artificial construct, the idea of legal or illegal. Um, and it's interesting to think about what you're saying because, you know, if we we haven't been particularly um, in, a, in a particularly generous place in terms of naturalization for a couple decades at least. We have made it very difficult for people to sponsor family members um, with visas that would allow them, you know, that give them green cards. And I, you know, something like DACA presents a really interesting, I think, worrisome challenge because you're asking, like, ma'am, should we make citizenship more available? You look at what the kind of one thing we've done in the recent past that was um, kind of a, an act of reconciliation toward undocumented immigrants who've been living in the country for a long time, just a group, a circumscribed group of children, and we did not give them citizenship. We invented a whole new form of semi-citizenship. It's yeah. dead end. It never goes anywhere. It's a terrible thing for a democracy to do with it from the perspective of like staying a democracy. <laughs> um, and we used to have a means, one of the things I chronicle in the book is we used to have a means for allowing long-term residents who'd lived in the United States and had not, um, you know, committed any egregious crimes or anything like that, but had shown themselves to be um, capable of good citizenship. We used to have a means for regularizing people who'd been around for a long time. What's interesting about that is not like, oh, we used to essentially give amnesty to people. Um, what's interesting to me is that it was considered shameful not to, that it, that there was a sense that like, what, what kind of country would we be if we allowed people to live here for a long time and they didn't become citizens? And from the other from the other side of it, like there was a sense that these are the exact people you want to become citizens because they want to commit to the country. They're, they have a zeal for for citizenship, you know. Yeah. So you know things have changed. That that is something that I've noticed in terms of watching, specifically as immigration has come more to the fore over the past five years or so. That even for immigration hawks, like the the the, the build a wall crowd that is something where you can be hard edged on of like hey we need to lock down this border to to just reestablish law right that is a theoretical concept that you can be rigid on when carlos who works at the deli who's the father of maria who you went to school with since you were a kid is being dragged off in handcuffs, now it becomes a neighborhood issue, right? And and that's bad. You don't want a pillar of the 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 Jenga that is our own little fabric of society to be to be ripped out. But theoretically, even that that might even affect people who have a a rigid ideological position. Which I mean, to me, just always, I I, I always thought that like that this is a ripe kind of bipartisan issue. To at least understand that, I mean, because both sides seem to think that we have a broken system. Nobody seems to want to agree on exactly how it's broken and how to fix it. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, it is well known that people react differently to um, violence in the abstract and yeah. violence that's 
they're um, they're present for. So the violence of a deportation in the abstract might feel like, yeah, law and order to somebody who is a um, is really anti-immigrant and might feel like kind of um, perplexing and 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 sad and disruptive um, in in their day-to-day lives. And you can see lots of evidence of this in the towns where ICE has conducted some of its biggest raids. There's ambivalence, um, even among people who, you know, might have been Trump voters or might be really um, towing the law and order line just because they can see the violence, the unfairness, um, and because their, you know, their own lives are then disrupted. So I saw uh, an interesting piece that compared what had happened in Mississippi uh, recently, a big ice raid to, to a natural disaster because it just sweeps away part of the foundation of the community. It is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's like a like a man-made rapture. It's just all of a sudden people are just kind of <laughs> gone, right? Uh, well, let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about that because politics tends to love the abstract because the abstract can't hurt them in the way that the uh, uh, yeah. present reality can. Uh, in in my opinion, this has led to a rich American history of very callous, if not racist, immigration policies uh, uh, throughout our history. Uh, is is part of this, and let's even bring it up to the modern era where we have tremendous controversies about family separation at the border, is part of this because they are still the abstract. These people are not citizens. They come from countries that are not the United States, and uh, therefore they are not our present pain uh, pain point in the way that they might be should they make it across the border and now all of a sudden live amongst us. Yeah, I think there's certainly been a lot of success on the, on the right in turning immigrants and dehumanizing immigrants um, to the point where People have no compunction about supporting practices that are, in some cases, torture. Uh, and one of the things I do in in illegal is try and chronicle um, some of the forms of torture that our immigration regime engages in. So, you know, it's a lot easier to torture people when anybody in a position to stop it, to vote against it, or to put their bodies, you know, in a protest or anything like that, don't view the people being tortured as human. Um, So that's been successful. I also think that uh, these are big bureaucracies and bureaucracies thrive on um, abstraction. And and so you see numbers, you get a lot of, oh, there's this many people doing the, these numbers of things. And and abstraction is its own kind of dehumanization that distances people from the reality of like, look, we are feeding people, mothers with children, you know, one bologna sandwich for several days. Pregnant women are being thrown into hot vans and driven around pretty rough rides. Um, you know, this is not stuff that I think that people could really countenance if they had to face it directly. Not everybody. There are there are people who could deal with torture up close in this country, but uh, but for lots of people, I think the reality of what's going on um, 
would cause them to feel compelled um, to act against it. Going forward, obviously, we are at a point where immigration is under the microscope. We had a very uh, uh, immigration-focused campaign from Donald Trump. Presumably, we will see at least part of that in his re-election campaign. Is there anything that, for you, as somebody who has studied this issue, gives you hope that we are anywhere close to progress on this issue? Or are these indeed dark times and there are dark times ahead? Um, I think there's a lot of people who are now mobilized and are are much more tuned in to not just the kind of individual incidents of um, abuse, but to the fact that we have an enforcement culture problem in this country. So I, I think they're 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 more people are more attuned to that. Um, I'm certainly uh, as dismayed as anybody could be that this is consistently the issue that Trump and is able to um, to mobilize. But, you know, I have to say things were pretty bad before Trump and there there was not a widespread understanding that that these that like ICE was as abusive as it was, that Customs and Border Protection had as much leeway as it does. I don't think I think now people have an understanding that the the divide between citizen and non-citizen is not some sort of um, kind of ironclad fence that will protect citizens from what is what ICE and CBP do. So I I think, you know, awareness has been raised. Is it going to be enough to push back and really um, turn the tide in terms of institutional change? I'm not sure. I actually believe that if we could move toward not comprehensive immigration reform, which was the direction that people were trying to, to move for a long time, but um, incremental immigration reform that we might be able to get some things done. Um, you know, I, I, immigration is a fraught issue for the GOP in a post-Trump world as it was pre-Trump, because there are lots of components of the Republican Party that have every reason to be supportive of fairly open and humane immigration policy. So there, there's some stuff there that we can work with, even if things are pretty go. dark right now. Well, uh, I, I would, I would really, really like to thank you for taking uh, your time out of your day to talk about uh, this with us. Elizabeth F. Cohen is a professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Her book, Illegal, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime Threatens Us All, is released on January 28th. So uh, uh, it actually will probably be out by the time that you are listening to this. So please support Elizabeth and go and get it. And you can find her on Twitter. Ali X uh, X A Beth. Uh, uh, sorry, you, you, uh, pronounce pronounce your Twitter for me. <laughs> My Twitter is uh, at A L I X A B E T H, like Elizabeth, and uh, I'm I'm uh, Elizabeth Sasha Baroness Cohen. Oh, there we go. All right, perfect. Uh, uh, well, well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, this was very enlightening. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you again to Professor Cohen, who I'm sure is at home teaching students via Skype right now. You want to know what? Let's go ahead and open up the mailbag. Uh, uh, please. I'll, in fact, I'll, I'll do more mailbag as as the weeks go on. Obviously, there's a lot of questions that I'm getting uh, a, a lot, but go ahead and send them in. 
theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Rishi from Ann Arbor writes, Trump support, uh, supports handing out upwards of $85 billion back to Americans. So then is Trump a socialist con man who hoodwinked the evangelicals, the bikers, and the thugs to make him think that he's actually a Republican? Well, I mean, giving money directly back to Americans is very, that's a very interesting lane, right? Because theoretically, that's kind of what tax breaks are. Republicans love tax breaks. The, 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 the government's just going to take, they're going to hold less of your money. They're going to give money directly back to you. Socialism is more, we're going to do a program that will get you this stuff. So it's like $1,000 back to you is like, here's money, go buy a sandwich. But if you don't want a sandwich, then buy whatever else you want. The socialist response is, we're creating the nationalized department of sandwiches. And we will give you a sandwich to make sure that you are never, you never don't have a sandwich. I'm using sandwich as just, you know, good, good or service. But that's the idea. Obviously, Andrew Yang really got his, his brand on the $1,000 a month stuff. Obligatory, George Bush gave everybody $300 back in 2008, uh, a line here. But 1000 a month was Andrew Yang's brand. You got a lot of people saying $1,000. Now, Bernie said $2,000 per household last night during his address. But I don't know exactly where... You know where where the um the 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 terminology is on that. The one thing that I'm a little curious about because there's a lot of this like, oh, there's no libertarians in a crisis talk going on, and I think that that's I get it. We're in free fall. Nobody knows what the hell's happening. We we don't know if we're ever gonna have our old lives back. We don't know what this new world that's going to grow up. After this is going to be, we don't know if this is overblown. We don't know if this is day one of the new normal. And so trying to reinforce our own beliefs is pretty much all we got, or at least it's a natural instinct. But I'll say this for as much as, yeah, there's a lot of uh, effort now to make sure that we have the luxury of shutting down our economy you have a strong economy you have a very rich government so you have the luxury of doing it if we were a very cash poor government then we would not have the luxury if we were going to shut down the the economy then we would just have to eat it going forward so i don't necessarily see where the, the, the difference is, and this is where I think if you are arguing for more social programs, then the argument you should be making is, all right, well, when everybody gets this relief, when everybody gets this money, wouldn't it be nice if we kept getting it? Wouldn't it be nice if we stepped up further and started making permanent some of the things that we found in the crisis? Meanwhile, the libertarian counter argument to there are no libertarians in a crisis is, Man, we sure are cutting a lot of regulations <laughs> when when the chips are down. Sure are a lot of random laws that are getting suspended. Kind of seems like 
Maybe everything would go faster in general. We didn't have as many laws. Diana writes, I desperately want to believe that your uh, guest on the last podcast said that the other side doesn't hate you as much as they think you do, or as you think they do. But as a lesbian transgender woman, how can I? Diana, thank you for emailing. I, I can't in any good conscience try to model where your life and your experiences are. So I'm going to uh, not insult you by trying. All I can say is this, is as I have done this program and I have uh, actively looked into communities across the political spectrum and I've had texts and emails and, and verbal conversations with people from many of those camps, I will say that in general, there's always the hatred of the national figure there's the hatred of the media cheerleaders for those national figures. And that's pretty much it. Now, sure, there are people with hate in their hearts, and that will always be a constant. Best thing we can do is to show love to our fellow Americans and those worldwide. But in good faith, and I do believe that there's more good faith out here in the world than we like to think there is, I do believe that even amongst people that we vehemently disagree with, there can be common humanity. And so, in a group that is obviously, uh, you know, got a lot of static around it, if you are a lesbian, transgender woman, then you're dealing with a lot of stuff. You're on the front lines of, of a, a civil rights crisis. I still think that even for those that you disagree with politically vehemently, there is good faith and there is respect. And dare I say it, more specifically, people who might disagree with you, and I don't even know what your politics are, all I know is that you're a lesbian transgender woman, I would bet that no matter where you fall politically, there are people that are diametrically opposed to you that are listening to this Saying, I respect Diana. Jason writes, is there any shot of a Biden-Bernie ticket? No. And finally, Stewart writes, is it just me or is the left terrible at politics? Less about the candidates, but their followers. It seems like they have an impossible purity test for everyone and don't know how to coalesce behind a candidate. Watching the loud progressive wing of the left do their best to gut Biden after Super Tuesday, uh, and he was nearly certain to be the nominee, is driving my pragmatic brain nuts. Well, Stuart, no matter what the Bernie people are doing to Biden, it's nowhere near the kind of damage that the establishment of the Republican Party was attempting to do to Trump. I mean, Trump won when... when the, the last nominee of the party was calling him a fraud and a failure. His promises are worth as much of as a degree from Trump University. Like that was that was happening. Like there was there was a concerted effort to to try to uh, damage Trump's general election candidacy. And you can think that that's right or wrong, but there's it's no doubt that that happened. 
the fact that the there is a, a divide between Biden and the progressives is certainly a sign that there is a rift in the party. I also think that it's it's not the progressives job to get in line. It's the, the winning candidate and the winning lane's job to coax them. You know, everybody just thinks that like, oh, like as soon as we're all done fighting, we blow the whistle and we all get in line. And that's a cool thing to say. But it's not guaranteed. And that'll wrap it up for us today. If you want to send me an email and I will be doing more of the mailbags, please go ahead. The young American at gmail.com. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Dennis, Brad, Richard, Kilowatt, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Milkleg, Jay Milius, Paul, Jonathan, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Olin and Angela, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Adam, D-Laser, and Middle-Aged Mike. You want to join their ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to follow me, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. It's Justin R. Young. Follow me everywhere. Hey, I got a weird podcast, man. I have all this weird creative energy right now with the lockdown and everything. So I decided to do a podcast where I'm going to watch a bunch of Billy Crystal movies from the 90s. Uh, It's on my Twitter right now or it's on my SoundCloud. Go find it if you want. Otherwise, whatever. It's called Crystal. First episode's about when Harry met Sally. And I also talk about disasters that happened in the year the movie got released. So in this episode, we also talk about Tiananmen Square and the Exxon Valdez disaster. It's weird. I don't even know, man. It's an odd thing. So go find it on my SoundCloud. I'll probably, I'm actually going to probably put it on the jury feed. So if you already signed up for jury or jury daily, then that's where you'll be able to get Crystal as well. All right. Until Friday, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Politics has three names. And some shows talk about politics, the others, well, they're talking about politics. And still more, man, I heard they were talking about politics today. But this is the only show that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>